I love that you've invoked Marvel because one of the aspects of responsible innovation that is really core to how we make this practical is the use of imagination. We all have our favorite science fiction movies that are thinking about either some dystopian future or perhaps something that's really utopian. One of the behaviors that we want to see in a culture of responsible innovation is that kind of what if thinking. We want to think about the age of Ultron example of what happens when everything goes wrong. Welcome back to Digital Health Today, the place to be to get the insights of leaders making the healthcare of tomorrow available today. I'm Dan Kendall, the founder and managing editor of Digital Health Today and your host on this show, the Digital Health Today 360 podcast. If you haven't done so already, please do take a moment to check out the other terrific shows that are all part of our channel. For example, if you're interested in digital therapeutics, check out the Digital Therapeutics podcast with host Eugene Borahovich. This year, we launched over 20 episodes where Eugene spoke with leaders and changemakers in the digital therapeutic space. There's also a ton of activity in digital health in Asia Pacific. So we also launched the Asia Pacific edition of Digital Health Today with host Tony Estrella. The APAC edition is now in its second season. And even if you're up to date on all those episodes, you should still check out our website for a brand new show that we just launched hosted by Dr. Stefano Bini. Dr. Bini is a surgeon, a professor, and an advocate for technology and healthcare. And we just launched his first season of shows on Digital Health Today. It's called Digital Health 101. And you can find it by visiting the Digital Health Today website or just search for Digital Health 101 on your favorite podcast app. Well, certainly turning out to be an interesting end to 2021. I don't think anyone could have predicted some of the topics being debated in every forum from courtrooms to congressional hearings and from C-suites to dinner tables. Technology is under the microscope, as are the behaviors of the people who develop, deploy, and use it. What does this mean for healthcare? What is being done to ensure that the conduct and decisions around the use of technology for our health and well-being are considered and applied more carefully than a new feature on a popular social media app? I wanted to get answers, so I connected with Nick Bott. Nick is a veteran of the health technology industry. He spent over four years as the chief science and privacy officer at a digital health startup in the Bay Area. Nick's worked for years at the intersection of novel health technologies and the ethical considerations required to use those technologies effectively and responsibly. Nick is the global head of bioethics, technology ethics, and responsible innovation at Takeda. For full disclosure, Takeda is one of the sponsors of Digital Health Today. In this conversation, I asked Nick about who's responsible for ethical decision-making. How can life science companies lead the way in setting standards for ethical development And I even asked him what we can learn from Tony Stark, otherwise known as Iron Man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You won't want to miss this episode. So let's tune into the conversation with Nick Bott, Global Head of Bioethics, Technology Ethics, and Responsible Innovation at Takeda. Nick, thanks for joining me. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. Nick, I always like to start with the basics. So let's just dive in, first of all, with some of the words that are in your title. Let's start with bioethics and technology ethics. Can you start off by just telling us exactly what those two terms mean and set a little bit of a foundation for us as we talk about how these terms relate to the work that we're all doing in healthcare? Well, bioethics really is all focused around emerging issues that come from advances in biology and medicine. And so bioethics as a discipline is not new. And what's unique to bioethics is it's always focused on that very specific context traditionally that we think about between patient and providers within medicine and healthcare. 
what I like to think about when we think about bioethics and technology ethics is we're really just opening up that aperture when we think about technology ethics, because now we're going beyond simply biology and medicine, which for a pharmaceutical company is the first place we go. But increasingly, as technology is impacting virtually every aspect of society, we're recognizing that there's a lot of technology that's being utilized, even within the life sciences, that goes beyond traditional bioethical topics. What does your role actually encompass? What are some of the things that you're involved with at an organization like Takeda? Takeda is a very large global organization. And my team, really, if we think about the combination of both bioethics and technology ethics, we have a pretty wide remit. So when we think about bioethics itself, we're doing a lot of work around developing principles and internal guidance documents that often serve as the foundation for policies and and SOPs around emerging issues that are priority areas within bioethical questions or concerns. We also lead a lot of ethics by design work across the enterprise. And so we're often working with R&D teams or commercial teams that are bringing products and services to market to really help them understand the life cycle of their products and services and how we can help support them in thinking around the ethical consequences of what they're building and wanting to deploy We also do a very large amount of collaboration, in particular with Takeda's Data Sciences Institute and the Shinrai Center for Trustable AI. So as you can imagine, AI is ubiquitous and it's certainly continuing to play a pretty significant role across the life sciences, whether it's on the front end and drug discovery, all the way through areas beyond the pill as we talk about it in ways that we can engage patients. And so there's a very large collaboration that we have with the Shinrai Center for Trustable AI, where we work very closely and thinking about the responsible development of algorithms, and also the ethical questions that come up with the application of those algorithms. And then, you know, lastly, my team also does a lot of, I would say, kind of special project work, where if there are unique initiatives that are coming up or high-priority projects within the organization that require some more specific ethical guidance or consideration, we're often brought in to consult in either a short term or in sometime longer time horizons to support those projects. When you're dealing with an organization with the size and history of Takeda, you have a lot of guardrails, a lot of processes and checks and balances that are already in place. What are some of the things that are being done across the life science industry to set standards and principles for behavior around bioethics and technology ethics? Within bioethics, it's a very deep and very long history. And so bioethics has really been developed from a set of core first principles. So when we think about bioethical engagement, We're often thinking around engagement from first principles of things like beneficence, non-maleficence, autonomy, and justice. And these often serve as the cornerstone for thinking about any number of ethical issues when we're thinking about advances in, in biology or medicine within a clinical or medical context. Thankfully, we're not starting from scratch. And while we're often involved in discussions at an organizational level around novel technologies or novel applications, we're very much still focused on using those first principles to guide our discussions. Now, one thing that I think is really fascinating, actually, when we think about AI ethics, which has become very much in vogue over the past few years, there have been hundreds of sets of principles and guardrails, as you described them, that have been developed by numerous organizations, etc., There's been some fascinating research and reviews and meta-analyses of those principles. And not surprisingly, what they find is a lot of them boil down to those fundamental first principles of things like beneficence, non-maleficence, autonomy, and justice. The, The one caveat I would say is that 
We do find a unique and interesting area within the development of AI and, and ML algorithms that tends to focus on this question of both transparency and explainability. And sometimes that's necessary to view as almost a separate principle on its own. But in many respects, you could almost fold that into some of the first principles around justice, for example. Well, certainly there are challenges about ethical development of AI just broadly across every industry. But there are even more issues and questions that come up when we apply this sort of technology to areas like life sciences and healthcare. That's right. And what I will say that I find to be a unique contribution within the life sciences and within healthcare more generally is as a space within society, there is a lot more ethical import built in to healthcare and the life sciences. There's a sacredness to the patient provider relationship, or maybe more broadly, when we think about our health, right? That's something that is universally valued and considered a pretty sensitive topic. And so one of the things I find very unique about healthcare and the life sciences is they already have the foundation and the scaffolding that allows us to think about this question that you brought up, which is the life cycle and the unintended consequences. So for example, when we think about bringing a medicine to market, we have exploratory R&D studies. We have phase one studies, phase two studies, phase three studies before we even get to an approval from an outside body. And then even after we bring a medicine to society, to the public, we have post-marketing studies. We have adverse event reporting. And what I think is really fascinating is when we think about technological innovation, oftentimes we have seen these unfortunate situations where that same care from beginning to end and even after a technology has been deployed in society, we haven't seen that same set of guardrails or processes invoked. And that's actually one thing I find very exciting about the role that life sciences can continue to play in the responsible development. We already have a lot of that structure in place. It's now just applying it in ways that go beyond when we think about traditionally what a life sciences company is bringing to market, which is fundamentally a medicine. Now we have to think about it in terms of all sorts of other technologies that might be supporting medicines or be working independently of them. Can you imagine if some of the social media companies that were deploying all these things out to billions of people, if they had those sorts of requirements internally to their organization and externally, what is the role of regulation and oversight in this sort of environment? How do we apply it, not just within life science, but really around technology generally? It's a great question. And I do think we are already seeing the beginnings of those conversations. For instance, this past summer, the draft EU guidance on AI regulation was first developed and set out. Now, it's still going to be many years before I think we see any of that enacted. But we are going to see regulation around some of these more advanced technologies, AI and ML algorithms. And in some cases, there's already calls for specific types of bans, whether it's on use of biometric data or facial recognition. One of the things that I see as really challenging about the space of regulation is one, we're not going to see it equally developed and deployed across the globe. And something that our team actually works a lot around is digging into kind of what seems to be coming around the corner so that we can be developing thoughtful ways to engage it, knowing that it's not going to be the same in Europe as it is in America, as it is in other Latin American countries or in Asia. And that's really important because as a global company, you need to be able to respond dynamically and understand the unique challenges that are going to come in, in each of these regions. But the other thing I will say is it's not always the case that regulation is really going to be the standard that you want to abide by. 
oftentimes regulation is more of a minimum than a maximum. And some of the work that we also engaged in is actually thinking collaboratively, whether it's with other pharmaceutical companies within the life sciences, or in some cases, other companies that are within healthcare more broadly, to be asking ourselves the question, what are the appropriate regulations that we should be pursuing? What are those guardrails that we think really are important? Because as the companies themselves who are doing this work, we're uniquely positioned to understand where we see the opportunities and also where we see the unique challenges and risks are. And I think ideally, we're at the table helping to have those discussions as opposed to simply reacting to them. So help me understand, for example, with the principles within healthcare, we begin with a hypothesis, we prove or disprove that hypothesis, we publish the results, and the healthcare community learns from that publication after having gone through peer review. But when it comes to AI, we don't have that same sort of visibility of what's happening. So how do we manage that where we have companies that may be creating things that, number one, they may not fully understand what actually it's doing? And number two, aren't we supposed to publish that and make that available, that sort of learning and understanding available for the greater good in the greater healthcare community? First of all, I don't think we should think about the development of algorithms necessarily in contrast to the way we want to approach any other sort of scientific development, because at its best, we should be using a very similar approach. (laughs) By very similar, I really should say the same approach, right? We should be starting with a hypothesis. We should be understanding the data that we're using to feed into that model and then testing it rigorously. And to your question specifically around the use of black box models, this kind of circles back to this principle we talked about briefly around transparency and explainability. And there's often a trade-off, especially with certain types of algorithms, where you might find better performance of what it is that you're trying to predict or the model that you're trying to develop, but with less explainability. And this is actually one of the places where, from an ethical perspective, on the technical development of the algorithm, you really need to understand what is the application of this algorithm. For example, if you're going to use an algorithm that might help you better understand the disease state of a patient, it's not enough just to say we have an algorithm that can do it because you need to go the next step to say who's actually going to be handed this algorithm and how are they going to use it and how are they going to have confidence in the information that is coming out. One of the things that we often hear about within most applications of machine learning algorithms in healthcare or the life sciences is the need to have a human in the loop. This idea that ultimately we're still working in a space where we need to have clinicians or those that can understand what is happening with the models as opposed to letting them run on their own or for us to just trust them blindly. Now, I will be quick to say that there are some applications where we may be okay with less explainability in algorithms, but I think this is exactly the kind of place where you're having to have these very rich cross-functional interdisciplinary dialogues with the data scientists who are developing these models, with the teams who are thinking, well, where is this going to be deployed? What is the healthcare application? And then beginning to tease out really what are the requirements going to be for us to do this in a way that promotes trust on the part of the end users. And frankly, for us internally, we say, this is something we can get behind. We feel that this is in keeping with the values that we are reaching for, as opposed to simply saying, we know this could be a good product. After you and I first connected by phone, I watched a movie with my oldest daughter. She became a Marvel fan over the pandemic. And there was one movie we missed. I watched it right after you and I connected, which was the Age of Ultron. 
the Avengers movie, Age of Ultron. And Tony Stark in that movie embeds this AI into the system without really telling anybody. He does this experiment, gets out of control. The whole world almost collapses in on itself as this being comes into existence and tries to destroy the world. That seemed to be an example of another term you and I discussed, which is responsible innovation and perhaps an example of irresponsible innovation. So can you define what responsible innovation is and how we should be thinking about it? I love that you've invoked Marvel because one of the aspects of responsible innovation that is really core to how we make this practical is the use of imagination. And science fiction is perhaps the most well-known way that we engage in these imaginative futures as a society. We all have our favorite science fiction movies that are thinking about either some dystopian future or perhaps something that's really utopian. But when we think about responsible innovation... I think about this as moving beyond the principle of what we think about when we're thinking about disciplines like bioethics or technology ethics, and we're moving now towards the practices and the behaviors of how we actually make this a lived reality in an organization's life. This has a lot more to do with kind of the culture and the default behavior that we are wanting to see happening in any area of the enterprise or the business. And to your point about science fiction, one of the behaviors that we want to see in a culture of responsible innovation is that kind of imaginative counterfactual thinking, that kind of what if thinking. And I will say that oftentimes we're thinking about the what ifs as, well, we want to play the devil's advocate. We want to think about the age of Ultron example of what happens when everything goes wrong. And that's true. That is one of the ways we want to imagine possible futures when we're thinking about emerging technologies and how our application or use of them may lead to unintended consequences. However, it's actually quite important for us to think about the positive benefits that emerging technology can bring. In fact, I would argue that it's almost imperative that we begin with the question of what can this bring to society? How can this improve some aspect of life, right? Whether it's a person's health or in some other way, And then begin to say, but yes, there's all of these great ways that this technology could benefit an end user or society, but what are the unintended consequences? So those are the behaviors that we would love. A mature culture of responsible innovation is doing top to bottom. So you're doing a bit of a pre-mortem on it, just really trying to assess what could go wrong. Absolutely. One of the ways that I really enjoy working in the responsible innovation space within the pharmaceutical industry is... There's so many great analogies between what we think about in the development of medicines and the pipeline and the process there with what we think about when we think about the techniques and the ways that we can put in behaviors and practices around responsible innovation. Because as you mentioned, one example is running a pre-mortem, or sometimes we call them a consequence scanning workshop, or using case-based analysis to begin to think, what are the adjacent possibles of a product that have been developed that have done well or conversely, that have had consequences that we don't want to repeat. And in many ways, these mirror a very similar process that we think about when we think about the responsible development of a medicine. And one of the things that I really appreciate about working in a company like Takeda is we have a lot of that foundation to build from. And there's certainly a new vocabulary, and there's certainly a lot of work to do to begin to help democratize and disseminate these sorts of practices into very different aspects of the organization, whether it's people who are doing work in data science, people who are doing work in product, people who are doing work in more fundamental R&D, that's going to look different with different teams. 
But I think there's a lot of common foundation that for those within the life sciences industry can already pick up on, which makes the job a little bit easier when you're thinking about creating that shared language around responsible innovation. Actually, that's a really good point. I was just thinking about who's really responsible or who's equipped to have these sorts of conversations. You mentioned the use of imagination. I don't think 20 years ago, we imagined some of the jobs and careers that people have today and some of the industries that exist today that didn't exist 20, 25 years ago. But who's trained and equipped to think about putting these into practice? Do we need more philosophy majors to be able to help to understand that? Or do we need some philosophy training within these other data science backgrounds to prepare people to have this sort of broader understanding of the impact of what they're doing? Well, you hit a nerve there because what can sometimes bother me, honestly, is this sense of only the ethics expert can weigh in on this. And don't get me wrong, I understand that there's a need in some cases for that expertise to come to bear. But if anything, I think what we need more of is a sense of shared ownership with respect to these issues where there's a sense that I may not know every detail of this technology or every nuance, but something about this doesn't sit right with me. And I want to feel okay bringing that up and saying, can we talk about this? I think that's something that everybody in an organization needs to feel comfortable doing. And in many respects, I think that's like my team's job is to help empower that sense of you can do that. That's not something that you should just say, oh, you guys over there and that function are the ones that ask that question, not me. We don't expect everyone in an organization to share a high level expertise in computational biology or the development of an advanced ML algorithm. Conversely, I would argue that we should expect that everyone in an organization has an ability to think ethically about the products and the services that they're working on. What I love about a role in bioethics or technology ethics or responsible innovation is it's inherently a team sport. We want everyone to have a sense of empowerment and confidence that they can wrestle with these sorts of questions. Certainly, there are places where expertise on aspects of these areas can be important. But fundamentally, we want to develop a culture where everyone feels empowered to ask those questions. And Decade is a 240-year-old company. And one of the things that comes with that kind of history, especially the fact that Takeda's history from its inception was a very values-based company. So we talk about Takedaism, which is the four values of integrity, honesty, perseverance, and fairness. That is a set of values that within the company is very well shared and very well developed. And when we think about the development of emerging technologies and the new questions that those bring up, it's a lot easier to disseminate and to create those champions across the organization when you are already working from a foundation of a company that's built values in from the beginning, we know who we are as a company and the values that we aspire to, and we're building from a very strong foundation. Since you do have such a long history and you do have such good practices and ethics within your organization, you must feel a sense of responsibility to share that out with some of the organizations and some of the people in the industry to make sure that you're all going in the same direction. What are some of the things that you're doing as an organization within the industry and with partners and other collaborators to help ensure that the industry does have those sorts of practices and ethics in place? That's something that I'm very excited about. 
I think it's still early days in the ways that we want to be working externally on a number of fronts, but we're already very much involved in cross-industry collaborations with other companies to help develop some of these shared sets of principles and shared ways that we want to act as an industry with respect to these emerging technologies. Outside of some of the specific industry boards that we're a part of, there are also academic organizations that we have become much more familiar with. One, for example, Santa Clara's Marcula Center for Ethics, which has been a great thought leader around questions of the ethical use of technology and responsible innovation. There are also some newer organizations like the Notre Dame Technology Ethics Lab and Elizabeth Ranieras there, who I think will continue to be very helpful sounding boards and collaborators when it comes to how we think about not just the way we develop the internal muscle, but how we think about the dissemination of that work externally in society. Because again, the value proposition for doing this work is that ultimately we're wanting to promote trust in what we're putting out there for society. And that's an inherently outward facing work. It's not just meant to be internal and kept up inside the four walls of our organization. How do you see this field evolving over the coming years? I certainly think these questions are going to be coming fast and furious in the next five to 10 years within healthcare and the life sciences. I think we're already seeing some of the results of advanced analytics and computational abilities on things like modeling of molecules and proteins. And I think we're going to see just many applications of how this can benefit healthcare applications. That's a very exciting place to be. However, I think it will also occasion and continue to occasion a number of questions of how we do that responsibly and ethically. So I certainly think these questions are going to continue. I also think that we're going to, maybe this is more of a hope than an expectation, but I certainly hope that we're going to see some maturity in how we think about the deliberate development and deployment of applications of technology. And I say that because I do think we are recognizing more and more that there are industries that have these processes in place, whether it's because it's part of the regulation that that guides them or not. And I think that's actually going to help us when we think about technology broadly in society to have a bit more of just an expectation that there is a process that technology should be walking through to ensure that it's being developed responsibly. And so I'm excited about that because that is something that will ultimately engender more trust And I do think it will force organizations working within technology to mature internally in how they view what they're bringing to market. Nick, thank you so much for coming on the program. We will have links to all those centers and references that you mentioned in the show notes. So I encourage people to go and take a look at those. And if you ever want to come back on the program and share more of your views, you're always welcome back. Thanks for being a guest. Thanks for having me, Dan. Really appreciate it. And that's our show. Thanks very much for tuning in to Digital Health Today 360. Be sure to check out all the Digital Health Today shows by going to digitalhealthtoday.com. You can find the Digital Therapeutics podcast, the APAC edition of Digital Health Today, as well as the brand new Digital Health 101 podcast. And this, the Digital Health Today 360 show. If you're an Apple user, just open your podcast app and search for Digital Health Today, and you can find all the shows under our Digital Health Today channel. Thanks again for tuning in. And until next time, keep on innovating.